Take a Bible out and find Psalm 8. Psalm 8. If you want to follow along with the outline, that should be in your bulletin. Sunday mornings, we're working through the book of Psalms. We're not looking at every psalm. We're not going in numerical order. We're just sort of jumping around. But we're spending, spending several months looking at individual psalms. We're going to read verse 8 in just a minute, or excuse me, Psalm 8 in just a minute. Before we do that, let me give you a little bit of background information that I think helps you make sense of what we're about to read. You may notice, if you've looked at the note already, that David addressed this psalm to the choir master which is a pretty good suggestion that he meant it to be sung in corporate worship. Uh, He says that in the note, to the choir master. So more than likely, David's thought as he's writing these words are that the people of Israel, when they gather together for worship, would sing this song together. You also notice a, a term that is only found in the notes of this psalm and two others, the term giddeth. And so it's found in 8, 81, and 84 might refer to an instrument. Uh, maybe we can get one of our band members on track to learn the giddith if we just figure out what the giddith is. So maybe it's an instrument. Maybe it's a musical term, uh, sort of like a melody to a song that uh, these are the words and you're going to sing it to this particular ter- uh, tune. It could refer, uh, linguistically, the Hebrew word could mean a person from Gath which maybe David had somebody in mind when he wrote this song. Maybe he was thinking about somebody there or something that happened in this particular place. All possibilities, uh, but clearly he wrote it to the choir master intended for corporate worship. One thing you do need to see is that verse 1 is a parallel to verse 9. The first verse and the last verse go together. And this word-for-word repetition in verse 1 and verse 9 is what Hebrew scholars call an inclusio. And it just sort of wraps the whole psalm up together, and it tells you the big idea of the psalm. So we're going to read it in just a minute, and the psalmist, David, is going to talk about several different things. He's going to talk about creation, he's going to talk about us, but by putting this verse in verse 1 and then coming back to it in verse 9, he's wrapping it all together and he's saying to you and to me, this is not about you, this is not about creation. I'm going to talk about you, and I'm going to talk about creation, but everything that I'm saying to you right now is really about God. And this is not on your outline. You can jot it down if you want to. This is really what David is saying in verse 1 and 9 by wrapping this psalm this way. There's only one God, and he is supremely majestic. You just got to keep that in your brain as we work our way through Psalm 8. All the different things that he's going to bring up. What he's really driving us back to is this one idea that there is only one true God, the Lord, the God of Israel, all caps, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, and he is supremely majestic. And so verse 1 says, O Lord, all caps, Yahweh, our Lord, our Adonai, our ruler, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he says the same thing in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Some of you may remember an old church song that used those words in the melody. And we sang that at my church growing up, and I almost can't read those words without singing that melody along with it. So I'm going to try really hard not to break out in song this morning when I get to verse 1 and verse 9. Two words you need to understand before we jump in, the word majesty and the word name. 
majesty here when we say that God is supremely majestic. We're saying he's royal, he's powerful, and he's beautiful. Okay? Royalty carries all of these ideas wrapped up in it. And when you read about God's name, it's not just like fill in the blank with your name, but it's talking about who he is, his character, his reputation, his glory. All of those things are wrapped up in God's name. And so when he says, O Lord, Yahweh, you're our Lord. You, out of all the gods, Yahweh, you are the one true God that we believe in. And your name, your reputation, your, your glory, your character is majestic in all the earth. It's royal and it's powerful and it's beautiful. That's what David's trying to drive at here in Psalm 8. So I'm going to say it one more time. You're tired of me saying this, but it's really important. Psalm 8 is not about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about creation. We're going to talk about creation. But when he brings up people and he brings up creation and the amazing things that we see in creation, all of it is driving us back to God. In verse 1 and verse 9, as the bookends remind us, everything in this psalm is really intended to teach us about God. So let's read it. Psalm 8, you follow along beginning with the note and then verse 1. It says, To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we believe with David that your glory and your majesty and your name are unparalleled. We believe that you are the one true God, the God of Israel, the God who sent your son to live for us and to die for us, the one who's moved us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We pray this morning that we would see you clearly, that we would walk away with truth driving us towards who you are and towards the great things that you've done for your people. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 8 is mentioned a lot in the New Testament. We're going to talk about some of those places where the New Testament refers back to Psalm 8, but the big idea, the big question that we're going to work off of is this, how does the supremely majestic God relate to human beings. We didn't just pull that out of the air. I think that's what David is driving at in this psalm. The whole thing is about God. And so we don't frame the question, how do we human beings relate to God? That would be an us-centered approach to the psalm. But we know he wants us to take a God-centered approach. So the question we're asking is not how do we relate to God, but how does the supremely majestic God relate to us? What do we need to know about the dynamic of this relationship between us and the God who is supremely majestic? And I'm going to give you a few ideas 
and then we'll sum it up with some application that points us to Christ. So the first thing you need to see is this. God uses the humble to shame the proud. How does he relate to people like us? Well, this is one way. He uses the humble to shame the proud. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The King James is well known in this particular verse. King James says it this way, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. He uses the humble to shame the proud. We talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning. I don't know where all of our classes are at, but in my class we this morning talked about David and Goliath. And this is one of the things we talked about. God uses the humble to shame the proud. And it's always been this way. When you go back to Deuteronomy 7 and God is explaining to the people of Israel why he chose them as a nation, do you remember what he says? He says, look, I didn't pick you guys because you were powerful. I didn't pick you because of your great military. I didn't pick you because you were so numerous, so so many more in population than all the other nations. I picked you because you were nothing, insignificant, weak. That's the kind of people that I like to use. You see it all the way back in Deuteronomy 7. You see it in Matthew chapter 21. In fact, Matthew 21 refers to Psalm 8. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. Uh, the triumphal entry, people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus goes straight into the temple area. And the children follow him, Matthew says. And the children are in the temple shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The children are shouting that. Jesus' enemies are also in the temple, and they're outraged. And they tell Jesus, you need to tell the children to zip it. And Jesus says, this reminds me of Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've ordained praise. Jesus says God is using the humble to shame the proud. Look what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. Paul says that it's the same for us in the church. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is not a New Testament truth or an Old Testament truth. It's just a truth. This is how God deals with people. He uses the humble, the weak, the foolish, the powerless to shame the wise and the strong and the influential and the powerful. So that's the first thing you see in Psalm 8. Secondly, you see this. Creation gives human beings good reason to be humble. God has made a world, a universe, that gives you and I very good reason to be humble people. How many of you guys have ever traveled to Colorado and you've been to the Royal Gorge? Been here? Any of you guys been here? In college, uh, I went a couple of times and rafted down the river here, Arkansas River, and uh, some great rapids to raft down. Some of you maybe have done that. When you raft down the Royal Gorge... You get right down underneath in the middle of the gorge, right underneath the bridge. And both times I did it, the guide says, hey, lock your feet in and just lean back and look up. So you kind of hold on and you lean back 
over the edge of the boat and you just look up and you see these two cliffs. At some, at some points, they're only 75 feet apart, but they go up for like 1,200 feet, just straight up in the air. And you're down there in that river in that little bitty boat and you just think, wow, I'm pretty small. That's really big. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but some of you have been to the Grand Canyon and people say you stand on the edge of this giant hole and you just look out at this big hole in the ground and you just almost takes your breath away and you just say, I'm small, I'm, I'm tiny, I'm insignificant. As I thought about the Grand Canyon, I, I came across a story this week. Pluto, we have a debate in my house as, as to whether Pluto is a planet. And my kids inform me it's not a planet, it's something else. But I say, no, it's a planet. Pluto's a planet. It goes at the end. So Pluto's a planet. I didn't know until this week, Pluto has five moons, Okay. Uh, That's not Pluto. That's one of the moons of Pluto. It's the largest moon of Pluto. It's called Charon. And uh, NASA has this little, you know, space contraption that's been flying out forever, and it just keeps going. It's not coming back. It just goes, and it sends pictures. New Horizon spacecraft, and it's just going. And it took these pictures of one of Pluto's moons. And uh, this is Charon. And you see the box over there on the side. You didn't know it, but now you do. That's the Grand Canyon of Charon. And it's out there, one of the moons of Pluto, the last planet. Pluto's the last planet. Did I say that? It's the last planet out there. Charon's spinning around out there. It's got this canyon on it, twice as long as the Grand Canyon, five times as deep. Five times as deep. And it's just sitting out there. It's just a big hole in this moon. And if you want to go see it, it's just five billion miles away. You just take a little trip out. Five billion miles Largest canyon in the solar system that we know of. Look at Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Quick astronomy lesson. Light, as God has created it, travels at 186,000 miles a second. That's really fast. Light can go around the earth seven times in one second. It's really fast. Light from our sun takes about eight minutes to get to our planet because the sun is about 93 million miles away, which is a pretty good tick. But it's not that far away when you think about how far Pluto is, the furthest planet is... Five billion miles away. We're just talking about huge, massive distances. And that's in our one itty-bitty, tiny, little solar system. Then you can move out to our galaxy, to the Milky Way. Then you can move out to the universe. I Googled this this week. I've, I've read different things, so I just Googled. Google knows everything. I said, Google, how many stars are there in the universe? And Google informed me, I want to say it correctly, Stars in the universe, 10 billion trillion, 10 billion trillion. For those of you who want the technical term, it's 100 octillion. And I can't explain that number to you other than to say you put a one on this end and you just start writing zeros. You just keep writing them. You just keep writing them. They say, you try to wrap your brain around this. 
more stars in the universe than grains of sand or dirt on planet Earth. What do you do do with that information? More stars, and it's not even close, not even a comparison. Stars in the universe than grains of sand. Now listen, David didn't know any of that stuff. This is what David knew. He knew he'd spent a lot of nights with the sheep outside with no artificial city lights to brighten up the sky, just dark. He spent those nights and he looked up at the sky and he saw it. And he didn't know about Pluto being out there as the last planet. He didn't know about Charon being out there with this big Grand Canyon. He didn't know about how fast the speed of light was. And 93, he didn't know any of that stuff. He just looked up and he saw it. And what he said was, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He knew it was big. You know, all the people around David, Egyptian culture, Mesopotamian culture, ancient Assyrian culture, they looked up and do you know what they saw? They saw gods, deities, goddesses, powers, spirits, things up there in the sky. David looks up there and he says, no, those aren't the gods. That's just the work of the one true God's fingers. And you made all that. And what am I? That you're mindful of me and that you care for me. What David is telling you and he's telling me by giving us this brief sort of ancient astronomy lesson to just tell us to look up to the skies. He's saying, look, God made an incredibly big world and he did it on purpose. He did it intentionally so that you would see the bigness of it and the vastness of it and the expanse of it and the incomprehensibility of what 100 octillion stars looks like and you would step back and you would say, Who am I? What am I? The creation that the Creator made gives us very good reason to be humble. Thirdly, and this is amazing, after number two, as image bearers, we've been given dominion. God's given us dominion. Verse five, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. There's an interesting phrase in verse five, and I made a little note of this in your bulletin, where it talks about you have made him a little lower than the fill in the blank. If you read it out of the ESV or the King James or the New King James or the NIV, your translation says a little lower than the angels. If you're reading out of the New Living Translation, the New American Standard or the the Holman Christian or the ASV, yours says a little lower than God. And the difference there is that the Hebrew word is Elohim. And it refers to spiritual beings. Used as a proper noun in the Old Testament, it refers to God. Used as a common noun in the Old Testament, it refers to angels. And Bible scholars look at this verse, and it doesn't have capitalization or lowercase letters in ancient Hebrew, so you just have to look at the context. And they look at the context, and about half of them say, I think he means a little bit lower than God, and about half of them say, I think he means a little bit lower than the angels. 
I think the best interpretation is a little bit lower than the angels because that's how Hebrews chapter 2 translates it in the Greek. But either way, the point is the same. What David is saying is, look, I'm looking up at the heavens, the work of your fingers, but you've made us to live here on this earth. And you've given us dominion over the things here. You've made us in your image and you've made us in your likeness. And as people with dominion, our job is to represent you to the world and to rule over the world that you made. That's what it means to have dominion. You represent God to the world and you rule over what he's entrusted to you. So a few years ago, 1979, there's a farmer in Assyria, or in Syria, excuse me, and he's plowing his field and he hits a rock. And so he tries to dig this rock up and he realizes pretty quick it's not a rock, it's a giant statue, larger than life statue. And it's a king. It's a statue of an ancient Assyrian king. And archaeologists find these things all over the place. And what these ancient Assyrian kings would do is they would have somebody sort of chisel out this impressive statue of them, of the king, and then they would just sort of drop them all over their empire, on every hill, in every city, on every corner. They just put them all over the place. And at the bottom of this statue that this farmer found, it said, this is the image and the likeness of the king. Exactly what Genesis says when it says that God created men and women in his image and in his likeness. And these kings understood something. They're leaving these pictures of themselves all over their empire to say, this is mine. They're claiming their territory. When you read in the Old Testament, do you remember one of the first commands that God gave Israel? Don't make an image of me. Don't make an idol of me or a statue of me. He gave them that command because he had already done that. He made people in his image and in his likeness. And he gave them dominion. And he said, your job is to rule over everything that I've created. You represent me to this world and you have authority over this world. David says, as insignificant as we are, when we look at the bigness of creation, what an amazing thought that you made him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion. You know as well as I do, we haven't done a really great job at exercising that dominion. We exercise dominion over technology, and we have computers and smartphones and all these great things, and they're used for a million good things. But most of the traffic on the World Wide Web is filth. I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, really, most of it, the majority of it is filth. So we exercise dominion in this area, and then we sort of twist it, and we pervert it, and we don't use it correctly. We exercise dominion in the area of medicine and and surgeries, and, and our doctors can do amazing things today. And then we turn around, and we take that same dominion that we've exercised for good things And we use it to end life of the unborn. And we use it to reassign people their identity depending on their mood that day. You take a good thing, exercising dominion, you you twist it and you use it incorrectly. But Psalm 8 is saying you have dominion. God's given it to you. And if he's given it to you, it's something you're going to give an account for someday. 
And you think about how we have done in exercising that dominion. You come to the, the end of Psalm 8 and you say, okay, he's made this world. It's really big and we're really small. But he's made us in his image and he's given us this authority and this dominion. That means we're going to give an account. That means we're in trouble. That's bad news. If I'm going to have to stand before God and, and answer for how I've exercised dominion over his creation, how I've represented him to this world... It's not good news for me, and it's not good news for you. So here's the good news in Psalm 8. Everything in Psalm 8 is not pointing us to ourselves, but it's pointing us to Jesus. Everything in Psalm 8 is pointing you straight to Jesus. So, quick story. How many of you ever watched the show, The Wonder Years? Remember this TV show? My dad used to make us watch this show, so I like this show. And you can find them online for free, and... There's the family. Jack is in the back. He's the dad, and he's just tough and mean and cranky. That's Jack. And the mom is Norma up in the front with those nice yellow pants. And uh, she's like classic helicopter mom, just overprotective, worried about her kids. And uh, older sister's in the back. Uh, his buddy and his girlfriend over on the sides. Right in the middle is Kevin, the main character, Kevin Arnold. Shows about him growing up through middle school and high school. And that's his older brother, Wayne, who's really the best character on the show over on the side, right beside Kevin. So the best episode of the Wonder Years ever, okay? Jack and Norma sit down the boys. Uh, Karen, the daughter, she's already moved out. So they say, Wayne and Kevin, we're leaving town and we're leaving you in charge of the house. Me and mom are going for the weekend and we're leaving you here all by yourself you're in charge. And Wayne, uh, excuse me, Jack gives them all the rules and tells them what they've got to do. And, and mom makes sure they have food in the fridge and all this stuff. And then they leave. And they leave them in charge. They give them, quote unquote, dominion over the house. And Wayne, as soon as mom and dad leave, Wayne says, I'm gone. I'm not hanging out at the house all weekend. There's no rules. And he just, he leaves. So he leaves Kevin all by himself at the house. And he starts to think and he says, well, I'll invite Paul over, I'll invite a few friends over, and he invites a couple of guys, they come over, and then one of those guys calls somebody else, and they call somebody else, and after you come back from commercial break, there's about 500 people in the house, and it's this big mother of all parties, and it is wild, and it's crazy, and Kevin is just this little kid, and he's sort of deer in the headlights, he doesn't know what to do. And he survives the night. The house is barely standing. Everybody leaves the next morning. And his dad's coming home. Here comes Wayne walking in the door. And Wayne looks around. And Wayne is usually the guy that gets in trouble for everything, right? He always gets in trouble. And Wayne's just laughing. He says, you're going to get it. This is going to be so good. Mom and dad are going to kill you. I love it. So here come, right on cue, Jack and Norma come pulling up in the driveway. They walk in. The house is just destroyed, totally wrecked. And there's Kevin and there's Wayne standing there in the living room. And Jack walks in and Kevin starts to confess. I mean, he starts to tell him, I'm sorry. And, and Jack says, Kevin, be quiet. And he looks at Wayne and he says, I'm really not all that surprised you did this, Wayne. And he gets on to Wayne and Wayne has this look on his face like, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And you're just waiting. You're waiting for Wayne to say, he did it. And you know Kevin, if you've seen the show, he's a soft heart. He's not going to lie about it. He's just going to fess up. And Jack's lecturing and lecturing. And then sort of the light bulb goes off in Wayne. And Wayne just says, I'm sorry, Dad. 
and he takes the rap. He takes all the blame. Kevin just goes completely free. The dude who wrecked the house goes free, and the guy who didn't, who wasn't even there for all of it, had nothing to do with it, takes all the blame and all the punishment, and he has to clean the house up. You never see it coming. Total curveball. Now, every illustration has weaknesses when you try to apply it to the Bible. And when I try to compare Wayne, Arnold, to Jesus, there's some limitations in that. You understand that. (laughs) However, that's what we're talking about here. You have somebody who wasn't responsible for the mess who steps in at the last minute and says, I'll take the rap and I'll make it right. Listen, Jesus is not mentioned in Psalm 8. You're not going to find his name. There's no little clues there. But every theme that we're talking about is driving you straight to Jesus, to who he is and to what he came to accomplish for us. So very quickly, we'll end with these ideas. Number one, as image bearers, we've sinned. We've sinned. We've fallen short. God gave us this dominion. Adam and Eve in the garden, instead of exercising that dominion over the animals, listened to one of the animals. Instead of obeying their creator, they obey a created thing. They see it as a snake. We know it's the devil in the form of a snake, Satan. And they take this God-given dominion and they just lay it down. They just give it away. We may not think of ourselves as a whole lot like Adam and Eve, but you understand every time you choose something over Jesus... Every time you choose sin over obedience, you're taking your dominion that God has given to you and you're just laying it down at his feet. Not God's feet, Satan's feet. Just giving it over. Just laying down. That's what we do. That's sin. And the Bible is telling us as as image bearers, as people given dominion, we have fallen, fall, far short, far short of what God has entrusted to us. God could step back and give us exactly what we deserve. Instead of doing that, he says to Adam and Eve in the garden, I'm going to send somebody to fix this. Adam, you should have smashed the head of the serpent right there in the garden, but since you didn't do it, I'm going to send somebody who will do it, who will smash the serpent's head. And 2,000 years later, he kept that promise. He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to crush the head of the serpent, and to exercise dominion where we haven't, where we failed. And so you see this in Psalm 8. It's not spelled out, but you understand it. Jesus came humbly to save sinners. That's one of the first themes in Psalm 8, right? God uses the humble to shame the proud. What did he do through Christ if not that? He didn't send a great king with an army. He didn't send a a philosopher with lots of degrees. He sent a carpenter. To die for his people, he's using the humble to shame the proud, just like he always does. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8, and it says, look, the creator of the angels became lower than the angels so that he could save his people. He came humbly. He didn't have to do that, but he humbled himself. The one who made the angels became less than the angels, and he humbled himself to die for his people. This carpenter, humble man, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross. 
You understand, none of it's accidental. This is not like plan B. This is not an afterthought. This is God's plan from the beginning. He makes people in his image. The only thing in all creation in his image. And when they fall, when they lay down their dominion, when they rebel against his authority, he sends his son to be born as a man. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. We read that in Colossians 1. And he took the form of the creatures he created in his own image in the beginning And he lived for them, and he died for them, and he defeated death for them. Here's the last idea you need to see is that in the end, God deserves all the glory and salvation. All of it. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection. And Paul says, look, in the end, Jesus is going to defeat every enemy. Death, sin, all of them. And it's all going to be to God's glory and to God's honor. He gets all the credit in the end. We don't take even a sliver. He gets all of it. That's what Psalm 8's about, right? Verse 1 and verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's not a psalm about me. It's not a psalm about you. It's not a psalm about how big the heavens are. It's a psalm from beginning to end pointing us to one truth. God deserves all the glory for who he is, as our creator, and he deserves all the glory for who he is as our savior. And until the day where Jesus comes back and defeats every last enemy, you and I want to be people who live our lives giving that glory and that honor and that praise to God. We want to spend our lives, whether we're singing in this room, whether we're working outside of this room, whether we're going to school outside of this room, whatever we're doing, we want to spend our lives bringing praise to the majestic name of our God. So let's pray together, and then we'll do that. Father, you are our God. You're the true God. You're the creator. Your name is great and greatly to be praised. And as we stop and as we think about who you are, and as we stop to think about who we are, And as we marvel at the great things that you've done for us, Father, we're in awe. We're speechless. All we can do is turn back to you and worship and praise for the greatness of your name and for the greatness of the salvation we have through your Son. Father, as we lift our voices together and as we sing to you, receive our worship, receive our praise. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.